Is this the land of the free and the home of the brave? Is this a land with liberty and justice for all? Is this one nation indivisible under God? No! Either let us practice the democracy we are preaching or shut up. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access. He was a leader, born leader, without a doubt. I mean a born leader, you know. Whenever he spoke, everyone stood up and listened. Yeah, I keep putting in words because it's just something else, you know? He's good. In my, in my language, he was a God-sent man. I shall try to cut my remarks down. But after all, I'm a Negro Baptist preacher, you know. <laughs> Nobody can control a Negro Baptist preacher. Even God sometimes can. <laughs> but nevertheless, I will try to make them like a woman's skirts. Long enough to be respectable, but short enough to be interesting. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was the pastor of America's largest Protestant congregation, a seminal leader in the fight for racial justice, and a U.S. congressman. As a minister, he preferred nightclubs to prayer groups. His political career was dogged by accusations of financial chicanery and neglect of duty, and his motives were often in dispute. But by 1965, he had become the most powerful black man in American political history. The white liberal was monopolizing the Negro civil rights fight. And he was allowing into his cartel, his monopoly, only those Negro liberals who would get along with him. I like the way he thumbed his nose at white folks. Now, I tell you, that, that spoke to my heart. See, if you've had the black experience in America, it would speak to you. He was saying things that we had not dared to think. Um, the tone of his speech was one of real defiance, of real anger. It was scary what he was saying, but it was also exhilarating to hear him. What we know, we know, all we know, that we are the children of God. And there is a God who rules above with a hand of power. 
maybe someday. But once in a lifetime, a man like that comes along. Once in a lifetime. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1908. He was a pampered, privileged child. His mother dressed him in Little Lord Fauntleroy suits. He had blonde hair and hazel eyes. His father, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., was the pastor of New York City's Abyssinian Baptist Church. By 1923, he had built it into the largest Protestant congregation in America and housed it in a magnificent new structure. capital of black life in America. Harlem in the 20s was bursting with visions of a new American Negro, freed from the economic and psychological legacies of slavery. By the time he reached his teens, young Powell was intoxicated with Harlem. shipped him to Colgate University, an all-male Baptist institution in New York State, 35 miles from the nearest town. Once there, Adam neglected to tell anyone that he was a Negro. He even pledged a white fraternity until a routine background check revealed his identity. My husband told me the story about how they would ride the train up to Albany, and then Adam would get off and change to go to Colgate, and Arthur would go on to Williams. And uh, Adam would say, well, okay, brother. He said, well, I'll see you. I have to put on my white face now. And Adam was going on to be white up at Colgate. He told us that the first date that he had at Colgate was the Baptist minister's daughter. And of course, it was a white Baptist church. And that was really interesting. He enthralled his classmates with tales of the glamorous life in Harlem. He provided chorus girls and bootleg liquor from New York for party weekends. He told them it was one thing to know Ellington's music, but quite another to know the Duke personally. Adam had been preparing for a medical career, but with a church job waiting for him in New York, he soon realized that all he had to do was walk in and take over. Well, of course, after all, there was the king on the throne in Abyssinia. Why should he not be the prince? So he became the minister. When Powell returned to New York in 1930, he found a city shattered by the Great Depression. In Harlem, where the suffering was greatest, grown men fought over scraps from a garbage can, and 63% of the children suffered from malnutrition. Immersed in a sea of misery, the new assistant pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church was shocked into action. He opened a free soup kitchen. He set up a job bank 
an adult education center, a nursery school, youth programs, and a mental health clinic. Clothing was solicited, mended, and distributed to the needy. When a man came in one day for shoes and found none that would fit, Adam donated a pair of his own. But Powell still found time for the secular attractions of Harlem life. Isabel Washington, Adam's girlfriend since college days, was a star of the Cotton Club and Broadway. Powell Sr. was dead set against her. She was, he insisted, singularly inappropriate as a minister's wife. Because I was in show business. You must remember, he was a Baptist preacher. And in those days, this was sacrilegious. For a minister to go with a showgirl? After all, I danced in costumes and showed my legs, you know. And Adam stood up and told him that I don't need the church, nor need your money. If I cannot have Belle, bunny girl, well, then I will not have the church. So, of course, he got his way. It was a public celebration. Across from the church, people rented window space to see the bride get out of her carriage. You must remember, there were two stars merging, my dear. There was Isabel Powell, the actress, the dancer, the singer, and he was the prince of Abyssinia. In 1935, when a false rumor spread through Harlem that a boy had been shot and killed for shoplifting, a riot erupted which lasted for two days. In a series of articles in the New York Post, Powell established himself as the voice of Harlem's despair. Have you ever eaten garbage? Dined on bones sucked dry by strangers' mouths? Bread soaked in the juices of a garbage can? It was not a riot, he wrote. It was an open, unorganized protest against empty stomachs, overcrowded tenements, filthy sanitation, rotten foodstuffs, and chiseling landlords. It was not caused by communists. The Uptown Chamber of Commerce at that particular time had not only no black members, but blacks weren't even allowed to have stores on 125th Street. In the Harlem community, black girls could not get a job as clerks in the 10 cent stores. Adam thought that this was a good place to start and accomplish two things, get jobs for some people and establish himself as a hero and a, uh, a fighter for black rights. Beautiful combination. You had an extraordinary explosion. And here was this very articulate, six foot four, handsome guy parading up and down 125th Street with his congregation. He would have his church people, those women. Most of those pickets in the street were women. Under the banner, Don't Buy Where You Can't Work, Powell helped establish picket lines from river to river along 125th Street. By that afternoon, the stores were closed. Bloomsteins, Woolworths, Crests, many jewelry and department stores on 125th Street were now in a position where they were forced to have to hire. Powell smashed barriers to black employment in the telephone company and the power company, in the baking, pharmaceutical, and beverage industries, and at the 1939 World's Fair. In 1941, he was a leader of the nation's first racially motivated bus boycott, declaring that every Negro that rides a bus is lynching the Negro race, 
Powell secured jobs for black drivers and mechanics in New York's public transportation system. He gave courage and leadership to a people who were hungering for someone to enunciate their feelings, their grief. And uh, that was the grip he had on them. To understand Powell is to understand how the black church could be used as it would later be used in the 1950s and the 1960s. And in that sense, he's an antecedent to the civil rights movement. But far more than an antecedent, uh, he was an individual who demonstrated the power of the church as a protest instrument, the power of the church as a social instrument, the power of the church as a community organizing instrument, and the power of the church as a political instrument. Everything that we are about as African people in terms of our struggle for justice and freedom started in the church. There is no separation of the sacred and secular of church and state. In black America, there is no separation. In 1941, Powell launched a newspaper, The People's Voice, as a forum for his views, and was elected to the New York City Council, the first black ever to hold the office. By the age of 32, Adam Powell was pastor of a 14,000-member church and leader of a mass movement which had obtained jobs for hundreds of Negroes. As a city councilman, he had all the publicity and prestige that went with the office, and his newspaper reached those thousands beyond political life. He was ready for bigger things. A new congressional district had been created for Harlem. It was an opportunity he couldn't ignore. At a rally at Madison Square Garden, black union leader A. Philip Randolph was expected to announce for the seat. Powell dropped a bomb on the massive crowd. Adam announced at that convention that he was a candidate for Congress. <laughs> upheaval. It was upheaval because they knew that uh, that he, he couldn't be defeated in Harlem. He was a rascal, I'm telling you. But he had charm, he had no question, he had charisma, and uh, he had a community in the palm of his hand. He really did. He didn't want to be called Reverend at that time, just called me Adam. And all the kids and all, you see him on the streets, they say, hello, Adam. You're crazy about him. Well, all, all you could hear was Adam Adam. The black preacher is preeminently a prince, the better ones. They are accustomed to parishioner adulation. And if they're good, they are, it's just superb. And this man was superb. swept into office, the first black man ever to sit in Congress from any of the Northeastern United States. He had a great image of being the champion of little folks, but I, I seem to sense that his motivation was to, to make Adam a big person. It was, it was a means to an end. It was not the end in itself. Powell's new congressional career was accompanied by a glamorous new wife, Hazel Scott. 
the ebullient jazz pianist, known as the darling of cafe society. Their wedding reception was held amid throngs of well-wishers at the Cafe Society nightclub. In Washington, they met a different type of reception. When I came in 19 years ago, this town, Washington, D.C., was a, what I call publicly, the cesspool of democracy. Oh, I was put out of nearly every hotel in this town after they found out who I was. A Negro, including a congressman, couldn't get a uh, cup of coffee in an ordinary cheap five and ten cent store. Unless you wanted to take it out in a paper container. On Capitol Hill, the congressional barbershop, the gymnasium, even the dining room were barred to black elected officials. He was breaking precedent. Adam first invited me to come down to Congress. And he paraded me around the dining room. I didn't like it. Adam was saying, you wouldn't let my people in, but I'm going to bring them in. That's what Adam was saying. I, Adam Powell, may belong to a group of people that some others may think are inferior, but I belong to a group of people that God, omniscient, omnipresent God, God of all power says, you are my children, and you're the same as anyone else. And with that kind of faith in me and courage in me, I know I'm as good, if not better, than anybody that walks the halls of Congress. We needed an Adam Powell who would yell and mouth off. And that's what he did. And that was his value, particularly to some of us who were younger and uh, were angry. When John Rankin of Mississippi labeled Powell's election a disgrace and vowed not to let the Harlem representative sit by him, Powell took a seat near Rankin whenever the Mississippian entered the chamber. One day, the press reported, Rankin moved five times. Whenever a person keeps prodding, whenever a person keeps them squirming, whenever a person is an irritant, it serves a purpose. It may not in the contemporary history uh, look so good, but uh, as t the times roll on, uh, future historians will say they served a purpose. He continued to insist, for example, uh, on putting an amendment on every piece of social legislation that uh, it not be used for segregated services. It was called the Powell Amendment, and it denied funds to any state which segregated its facilities. In the face of Southern congressional power, the amendment caused the defeat of federal aid to education and other social legislation. And people would deride him. There were editorials in the New York Times, editorials all over the place. Why does Adam Powell get in the way of all this social legislation? The liberals hated him for it. I feel it was uh, fundamentally uh, an act of demagoguery because it did not advance the cause. It gave him an opportunity to make speeches. Uh, I, under I could understand from his point of view why he would do it, but he knew full well that his offering that amendment would ensure the death of, of uh, federal aid education. So he had an issue that he could keep alive, but he didn't do much to advance the cause of better schooling for the people of the country, including the children of his own district. And we probably were not discriminating enough to discern whether Adam was always right or wrong or whether he was on a good issue. But he gave white folks hell, you know. And they'd been giving us hell for so long, you know, we were glad to find somebody who was in position to give white folks hell. Every piece of legislation that went through 
during his congressional career, had a pile of amendments. I mean, they, whatever the legislation was, there would be a pile of amendment on it. Out of the three billion people in the world today, two billion, five hundred million are colored. And these colored people are saying, don't talk to us about a free world, and don't talk to us about following your leadership as long as you've got our colored people in Cambridge, Maryland, not able to buy a cup of coffee in a cheap little lunch counter. In 1955, Powell defied a U.S. government boycott to become the only American representative at the first conference of third world nations in Bandung, Indonesia. He traveled at his own expense. These are colored peoples, two billion of them represented here. But surprisingly, it's not anti-white, it's not anti-American, but it most definitely is anti-American foreign policy. He confounded expectations by defending U.S. progress in race relations and by blocking a Chinese effort to have the conference condemn America for its racism. A startled but elated Congress hailed him with a special resolution. The veterans of foreign wars named him their Man of the Year. And an embarrassed State Department called him in for a special debriefing session. They had had no representative at the conference. Ang Lee Powell was bigger than life in a lot of ways. I think to understand that one has to understand the times in which we were living. And late 40s into the mid 50s were a time really when there was very little hope in black America. Segregation was the law of the land, certainly where I lived in the Midwest and the South. And uh, I certainly never imagined that segregation would ever end. Adam Clayton Powell was almost like this, this mythic figure who came to do battle on our behalf. That's what Adam represented, hope. Hope that situations would change. Hope that because of his uh, rambunctiousness, uh, it would come sooner, faster. He spearheaded efforts to combat lynching and voting taxes. He got the first black reporter into the Congressional Press Gallery and the first black cadet admitted to the U.S. Naval Academy. He kept up the pressure, loudly and publicly, to integrate the Army, public schools, and the workforce. He became the congressman of all of black America. When you're down and out, lift up your head and shout, there's gonna be a great day. Angels in the sky promise that by and by there's gonna be a great day. Gabriel will warn you, some early morn, you'll hear his horn. It's not far away, hold up your hands and say, there's gonna be a great day. and let everyone know it. He bragged that they never missed a first night on Broadway and that they spent idyllic weekends at their beach house listening to Rachmaninoff on the phonograph. When in Washington, he cruised the Capitol streets in his powder blue Jaguar. He liked to call himself the first bad nigger in Congress. He bathed in blackness. <laughs> he smeared it in people's face and said, that's who I am. The hell with you if you don't like it. <laughs> uh, and I think 
that's indication of Allen's basic appeal. He represented the fundamental alienation of black folk uh, at that time. Nobody seemed to be able to get that through their heads. Uh, you know, and finally uh, exploded, of course, in the 60s. Uh, but uh, uh, it was there all along. Powell's brash independence and high living might have delighted black Americans, but it excited unwelcome attention from others. In 1952, the Internal Revenue Service charged him with underpaying his taxes by $3,000. In 1956, a federal grand jury examined his tax returns and in 1958 indicted him. What about these income tax charges against you? That's for my lawyers to answer. I've already pleaded not guilty. His doctor told a story when Adam was in that tax trouble. Adam was adored by the sisters in the church, of course. And some of them came in and they couldn't sleep. And he said, does this have anything to do with Adam's being in trouble? Oh, yes, he said. And he said, well, he was joking, of course. He was a good friend of Adam's. He said, well, don't you think he might be guilty? And they said, well, doctor, we knows he might be guilty. That's why we can't sleep at night. <laughs> the gentleman's question was that if the case goes against me, could it be used against me politically? You answer him, please. <laughs> the case against Powell himself was dropped, but a Powell aide was jailed for kicking back salary to him. The investigation smacked of political harassment, but questions remained about Powell's guilt and his character. And attacks against him continued for his uppity attitude, his lifestyle, and his infrequent attendance in Congress. When he was blasted by uh, the Southerners, Southern segregationists, for absenteeism, that, that meant virtually nothing to us. Uh, he was, in many ways, for a long time, defined by his enemies. And his enemies were our enemies, and we made no mistake about that. Most black Americans, especially Harlemites, felt the same way. Adam, you know, never even sent a postcard out at election time. He didn't have to. He'd go to church on Sundays and tell them all how they were supposed to vote, and then they'd go out and tell everybody else what Adam said. And that's the way... That's as much campaigning as Adam did. Really, he was incredulous. But everybody seemed to love him. The night he won his primary, he was coming down the streets like a Pied Piper. All of these people following Adam Powell and just laughing and clapping. And Adam had on a black silk cape lined in some kind of peach satin. I'll never forget it. And it was, flung, it was flung back so you could see the inner lining. And Adam came to the foot of the stairs here in the church. He's coming in now to give his victory talk to all of us who worked so hard and what have you. And this Adam came in the door. He said, brothers and sisters, the king is coming in. And the people said, Adam, Adam, I see it right now. It was such an exciting time. He knew his audience and knew how to excite their emotions. We were having a big core meeting. We asked Adam, would he come and make the fundraising speech? He said, yes, just give me a fact sheet so I'll know what I'm talking about. Tell me the things that you've done. Uh, he um, was looking at the paper that we had provided him, the fact sheet, and where we had said seven restaurants were desegregated by core, he added a zero 
70 in Washington. Not five in Baltimore, but 50 in Baltimore. And so on, kept adding a zero. And it was a stirring speech and people were impressed. And he said, and now we want you to contribute to this mighty organization. And he reached for his check. It was a check for $100, he said. Others began writing checks or putting uh, large denomination bills in the basket to follow suit. Later, I must tell you that uh, Adam's check bounced. With John F. Kennedy's election in 1960, the nation moved into the expansive era of the new frontier, and Powell moved with it. His 16 years in Congress entitled him to the chairmanship of the House Committee on Education and Labor. Despite congressional antagonism, Adam Clayton Powell was about to become the most powerful black man in American political history. Powell's change in status again coincided with the change in wives. He divorced Hazel Scott and married his third wife, Yvette Flores Diago. Meanwhile, the civil rights movement was transforming American race relations. In 1956, the Montgomery bus boycott had startled and roused the nation. In 1960, the first sit-in by black college students took place in Greensboro, North Carolina to protest lunch counter segregation. Freedom riders were challenging segregation on buses plying interstate routes throughout the South and being met by tides of brutal violence. Powell was the national spokesman for black impatience. It's not the color of your skin, brother. It's what you got in your heart and in your mind that makes you a man or a woman. Remember that. And if you all will stand together, there's nobody in this world that can stop a united mass of people moving as one, standing together, working together, picketing together, boycotting together, voting together, loving together, worshiping together, you'll win together. Walk together, children. Don't you get worried. Great campaign in the promised land. Committee will not come to order. Powell's Education and Labor Committee pushed through the first federal aid to colleges and universities and established the national endowments for the arts and the humanities. Bills were passed to build schools and libraries, provide teacher training and student tuition assistance, educate the handicapped, train the unemployed, and ensure equal pay for equal work. After Lyndon Johnson became president in 1963, Powell and his committee churned out legislation at an unprecedented rate, 60 major pieces in five years, and saw every one of them pass by Congress. Representative William Ayers declared, there would be no war on poverty without Adam Clayton Powell. This new law is the most significant education bill passed by the Congress in the history of the Republic. In fact, this session of the Congress will go down in history as the Education Congress of 1963. The blizzard of legislation meant that Powell directly or indirectly, control the disbursement of over $10 billion. He was one of the most powerful men in America, black or white. I suppose Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964 um, is the greatest 
monument to Adam Powell. Um, uh, written into that uh, great legislation is what he started offering and as a lonely black voice in the Congress years before the Powell Amendment. Tax money collected from the whole people should not be used to serve one segment of the people and exclude another segment of the people, but rather it should be used to benefit the whole people. Um, that's helped change America. Powell's legislative authority did not end at the halls of Congress. By the mid-60s, he was convening his committee meetings on the streets of Harlem. These people here, for instance, leaning out the windows, they've never seen a hearing. Uh, yet these are the people for whom we legislate. I, this is no stock show for me because I don't need anything in this community. I got 84.4% of the vote last year without spending a penny. All right, all television and cameras will have to stop now and the committee will formally come to order. And we As his power grew, so did his delight in flaunting it, which suited his constituents just fine. I remember once that he said that he was going to go off to uh, Paris to prepare for a congressional investigation of nightclubs in Paris. And it was very clear that he was mocking congressmen who went to Europe to say they were investigating this and would spend their time partying and drinking and womanizing and all this. Powell did it all openly. We liked the open defiance of the system. Next Sunday, Pan American luxury flight to Paris. <laughs> Paid for by Congress. <laughs> the United States delegate to the World Labor Conference in Geneva. All expenses paid. First class all the way down, all the way. Sarsaparilla too. In the summer of 1962, set off on a six-week European junket, accompanied by two aides, Tamara Wall, a staff attorney, and Corrine Huff, the first black Miss Ohio. He left his wife behind in Puerto Rico. She had just delivered their son. The State Department arranged for the best theater seats in London, the consul's motor launch in Venice, and a chauffeured army car in Paris, along with reservations to the Lido. Was a triumphal procession. News of the trip elicited such an outcry that Powell cut it short, hurrying home to display his loving devotion. Well, there's no right or wrongness to it. Well, I'm sure that you don't go to Paris and stay all the time in the in Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, you don't go. But, but is that part of committee business? It's, of course it's part of it. You're going abroad. Travel is a very broadening form of education. And, I'm and I wish to assure you it's practiced by every member of the House and the Senate. He knew that he was perceived as a devil, as being naughty, and he adored it. He loved putting on an act uh, as if to say, am I not a naughty boy? And he was. Do you, do you think that having relatives on the payroll is a good thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You think very it's a very good. good thing? Very good. You think it should be promoted? In other words, you're not... As long as 100 plus members of the House and uh, X number of senators, that I'm going to do it. 
Well, you're not criticizing this 100 members. What you're doing is really uh, complimenting them. I compliment all my colleagues. <laughs> Powell seemed capable of braving the congressional tempest, but other storms were brewing. In 1960, a 66-year-old domestic worker named Esther James sued Powell for libel after he accused her of being a bag woman, someone who delivered payoffs from gambling, prostitution, and drug racketeers to the New York Police Department. She won a judgment for more than $200,000. You have to ask yourself, why is it that a poor woman in Harlem who has no money can pay five of the best lawyers in New York for three years to bring a charge against Mr. Powell? not only refused to pay, he also refused to appear in court and was cited for contempt. The only day he could be in New York was Sunday, when a civil summons could not be served. He would breeze into town, preach his sermon, and leave the same day. But his absence from Harlem, his high living, and the development of the civil rights movement began to erode the unquestioned devotion he had taken for granted. Whenever power is questioned in terms of his leadership, particularly by the white press, he's questioned about his leadership, he will get to a point and then he will say, well, you see, I'm black and you're white and you don't understand. understand. Right. But I'm black and I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to know the Adam was used to being very powerful, all powerful. He spoke for all blacks. As far as people in Congress were concerned, he was the one. And then Martin comes along at 29 years old. And now all of a sudden, not just Atlanta or Birmingham, but the whole world accepted Martin as the spokesman for blacks. And uh, that isn't the way Adam could see it going. In 1960, Martin Luther King planned to picket the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. Attempting to reassert his control and put King in his place, Powell threatened to leak a story of a homosexual relationship between King and Bayard Rustin, a King advisor. That the story was fictitious made no difference. It could ruin King. The picketing was put on hold. Well, Powell had a kind of a vicious streak in him. I mean, if, if he wanted something, he knew how to go after and get it. I mean, it was, he was a political animal. He knew his trade well. Frankly, I do not think Adam was an immoral man or a moral man even. I think he was amoral. I think he was um, almost completely political, who would do whatever served his purposes politically. And that meant personally, because the politician cannot separate uh, his own personal advantage from uh, his political advantage. The movement acquires a kind of um, moral purity, and there is a sense of moral purpose about the movement that, so that the ends are not just political, the ends are also moral and spiritual at this point. And so given that that becomes the climate in which the politics take place, Powell's lifestyle and the, the womanizing and this, that, and the other begins to seem rather tawdry at that point. Powell began to seem to be a very um, self-indulgent figure. Leaders have responsibilities. 
But the personal side of Powell would never permit him to subordinate that to the public requirements. I'm going to do no more, no less, he would always say, than the next fellow. Well, if you're going to be a leader of a major cause of civil rights in this country, you may have to do more. You may have to live differently. And he was not prepared to do that, you see. And that caught up with him. In 1966, disaster began to congeal around the Esther James case. It had been dragged through 10 separate courts coming before 80 different judges. Still refusing to pay the libel judgment, Powell was now slapped with a citation for criminal contempt. He could no longer set foot in New York, not even on Sunday. Powell established an island retreat on Bimini in the Bahamas. Now the irony is that the woman really was a bad woman and everybody knew it. But the reality of the situations, so far as the New York scene was, that the way to get from under that judgment, all he had to do was say, I'm sorry. But that wasn't a part of Adam's personality construction. From his tropical base, he ridicules civil rights leaders with nicknames like Whitey Young and Martin Luther King. And he began to drink heavily, up to a quart of vodka a day. How do you see your role in the struggle, sir, at this point? Well, I'm just the old man of the sea, that's all. Congressman Martin Luther King is supposed to... Who? Uh, <laughs> what? What's the name? Martin Luther King. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him, that's right. What'd you say, sir? He's uh, supposed to come to New York today. Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful. In the face of everything, Powell still retained his grip on Harlem. In November 1966, he was elected to his 12th term in Congress. Uh, Mr. Powell has said that Harlemites would elect him even if he was dead as long as he was propped up. Is that true? I think the congressman is uh, being very accurate in that statement. On Capitol Hill, however, sentiment was growing that Powell should not be allowed to sit in Congress. Frankly, even as we discuss the matter today, Sure that you gentlemen aware of the fact that he was not around, and I guess he was down in Bimini, as I stated. He was down there with a glass in one hand and a woman in the other hand. And I don't think it's incumbent upon us as responsible members of the House to belabor ourselves with a man with an attitude such as that. When uh, Speaker John McCormick returned to Washington, uh, I was immediately summoned into his presence, and uh, his first question was, well, now, Van, you don't actually think that the members of Congress are going to deny a seat to a man who's been duly elected, do you? And I could only say, Mr. Speaker, I've been here in Washington, uh, and you have not, and I think perhaps you're unaware of how, uh, how deep the feeling has, uh, has gone. Do you see any possibility you might not be in Congress in the coming term? Do I? I don't see anything. I'm over here. Do you? Oh, you're over here, too. You don't know. See you. <laughs> if there was a turning point for that, it was a Newsweek cover story. And it showed him on the dock at Bimini in a yellow, loose-knit shirt, smiling. And there was an emotional reaction to that photograph, which was extraordinary. People would call him up and say, 
Adam, that picture has cost you at least 40 votes. And people are saying, we're going to wipe that smile off of that guy's face. You know, look at him, he's, uh, he's not contrite. We want some contrition. And you could tell from his expression, he was not contrite. I even had overtures sent to me last week from one of the number one liberals of Congress saying, if you will just be humble and say I apologize, that'd be all of them. I said, apologize for what? I think there was an enormous amount of racism. Um, I think that Adam brought some of it on himself. Um, he couldn't help flaunting his power and his lifestyle. He was a flamboyant guy. And uh, when people said, you better pull back, it was like a red flag to him. He couldn't pull back. Is that the answer? Too much white power for a Negro congressman? That's right. Absolutely. When a man passes 60 bills without one defeat in six years and raises the educational commitment of the federal government from $450 million under uh, my predecessor, Graham Barden, who believed that the earth am flat and the sun do move, to $10 billion, that's too much power. I'm not that persuaded that it was a an anti... Uh, black uh, a racist move because there were too many uh, people who were clearly pro-civil rights and pro-blacks uh, who were simply fed up with him. Congressman Van Dierland moved that Powell not be sworn in until a congressional investigating committee reviewed his fitness for office. Thousands of Harlemites gathered in Washington to demonstrate support of their congressman. On January 10, 1967, the House was slated to vote. Even I was amazed, and I knew how strong the feeling was running against him, but even I was amazed when the vote came down to 363 to 63. It was a margin of 300 votes. I stood next to Adam behind the rail in the House of Representatives when the vote came to uh, throw him out, and he couldn't believe it. He didn't really think that the House would do that to him, and it came as a great shock to him. And as he went out of that chamber, it seemed to me that psychologically he collapsed. His shoulders just slumped, his face was he just had such a blank expression on his face, and I remember thinking, God, what a shame. To move everything out of my offices, everything out of my building, I am out as a congressman. You no longer have a congressman. Was only suspended from office. In March, the Congressional Committee recommended that he be seated but lose his seniority and his chairmanship. But the full House ignored the recommendation, voting 307 to 116 to exclude Powell from Congress entirely. 
We do not justify Adam Clayton Powell's misdeeds. Misdeeds are misdeeds. And uh, certainly we wouldn't justify this, but we feel that there should be a uniform code of conduct act applicable to all congressmen. And the fact that Congress has not done this means that there's a great deal of hypocrisy there. And to single him out certainly doesn't deal with the great evil that exists within the congressional system itself. Would you vote for him again? Yes, I would. Can you tell me why? Because I think he's a good congressman. I really do. I think the whole setup is a put-up thing. How about all the charges leveled against him? Well, I don't think he's completely innocent, but I don't think any of them are. Because I think he's the greatest man in the world. In April 1967, Powell was re-elected to fill the vacancy created by his own exclusion. He beat his Republican challenger by a seven-to-one margin. So we voted for him in spite of some personal misgivings we had to let them know that it was not their prerogative to choose who would represent us. Despite Harlem's vote of confidence, the House again refused to seat Powell. The Supreme Court would eventually rule seven to one that Congress had illegally excluded him. He was reseated, but deprived of his seniority and his chairmanship. A $25,000 fine was deducted from his salary. Adopting the motto, part-time work for part-time pay, Powell responded to only nine of 177 roll calls that year, a new record of absenteeism. He hasn't shown us, mostly of his race, that he's too interested in coming back, and if he hasn't put up a hard enough fight. And if I feel as though he's not interested in coming back, admit up to it, vacate the spot, so somebody else can replace him. Should at least come back or do something. Yeah, yeah, but we have no representation in Harlem. We have to have it. Somebody has to be with us. Back in Bimini, his longtime companion, Kareen Huff, abandoned him to marry the skipper of his fishing boat. He seemed entirely spent. The last three years of Adam's life, he was dying. He knew it. He had cancer, <clears throat> and he would go to a public meeting. I was at some of them. He said, that, well, my doctors told me that I've beaten the big C, you know, which was a lie. <laughs> the doctors told him, we, we, we ever told you that? <laughs> but Adam was playing to his audience and stimulating them, the fact that he's well again and vigorous again when he was still fighting cancer. A man can't fight approaching death and all the political forces all at the same time. In 1970, ailing, absent, and powerless, he lost his first election ever by a margin of less than 150 votes. Adam Powell died of cancer on April 4, 1972. He was 63 years old. On the day of his funeral, the city of New York ordered flags lowered on some of its buildings. Two days later, his ashes were scattered from a plane onto the warm seas surrounding Bimini. You know, Adam Powell's life um, uh, tells us 
um, something quite profound about being black in America. He was uh, born as high in the black community as a man could be born. Uh, and he was uh, carried even higher by his own gifts and by the love that his community had for him. Um, and yet, no black person, um, at least in th up through the 20th century, gets through life in these United States without paying a fearful, psychic black tax. And uh, Adam uh, served his people, lived as a human being, and paid a horrific price. God bless him. I think that he was a great man. I don't think he gets the credit for what he tried to do. I still have great love and affection for Adam Clayton Powell, and I'm just grateful that he was there when I was a little boy and an adolescent uh, coming up. And um, I honor his memory, and uh, I love the man. I wrote an article uh, about Adam soon after his death, and I said that to, in order to uh, understand Adam, you need a, a child and a very old man. You need a child to say that the late emperor of Harlem politics have no clothes. And you need an old man to say that there was a time when he had clothes and they were beautiful. Anything else you'd like to add about Adam? No, I'm just very glad that uh, you got in touch with me so that I can relive a few of my memories. Hey, Petey, have you heard about this new podcast, Public Access America? You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and even the Stitcher Smart Radio app. It's so cool. Not good enough. But are you a German spy? Because that sounds like technology. It's like that new thing, the radio, or a newspaper for your ears. You can even follow their production company, Jar Codes, on Twitter or Facebook and find all new episodes posted every day. Oh, that's cool. I don't care nothing about no planes, but I got to hear the latest episode of Public Access America now. Oh, watch the bomb. You can even go to their YouTube channel at Public Access America and find great videos from our time. It's so cool. Go check out Public Access America.